Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Alexander Riley joins us today. He is a sociologist at Bucknell University, author of many things, books and articles, on including for first things, on issues of the sacred in society, totalitarianism, uh, the major figures of the history of sociology, Emil Durkheim and, and others, and also the current political correctness. Uh, he joins us today uh, on, on that latter point to discuss a phenomenon that most all of our listeners have followed with dismay, and that is the spread of woke ideas and behaviors on college campuses, places where uh, we should have enclaves of free thought and free speech. So let's see what has happened from, from your perspective. Welcome, Professor Riley. Thank you, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. Let's do a little biography here. When did you first see an expression of what we now call woke, wokeness in, in your work, in the classroom, on campus, in the workplace? Well, I, so I was a grad student in the 1990s. My, my first year in grad school was uh, 91, the 91-92 academic year. And even though we didn't use this term to talk about it then, it, it, it almost certainly was present already then in those circles, at least in grad student circles. This is one of the things that we might talk about is how the, I mean, in my view at least, as a social scientist, the thing that we're calling wokeism is, if, if it's not exactly the same thing as what we were talking about in the 90s when we talked about political correctness or what we talked about even earlier than that when we talked about some of the the efforts to create new kinds of academic programs, all the studies programs, et cetera, even if they're not exactly the same thing, they're part of a, the same organic phenomenon. And so the, the, the main thing that's happened and that's led us or that's gotten us to the point that we're at now is just that there's been a more or less, at this point, complete institutional takeover by those ideas. That when I was a grad student in the 90s, for example, those ideas or more or less those same ideas were present but they really only circulated in graduate school, among graduate students, among faculty, in discussions with graduate students and with other faculty. You didn't see them, for example, in the undergraduate curriculum to the degree that you see them now. I mean, now we not only see them in the undergraduate curriculum, we see them in the pre-college curriculum. I have, I have kids, you know, my oldest child who's in high school now, already when she was in fifth or sixth grade, she was coming home with uh, homework on American history that was straight out of this vocabulary. And so that's one of the main things that I think we've seen change is just that the, the expanse of the ideas 
has has grown. But they were they, they were there, and a lot of the figures that at least you know a generation or so on are still being read and still being thought about as important uh, idea creators in this tradition. They were already there when I was in grad school. You know, I have to say, Alexander, that I I started seeing it. When I was in grad school in the eighties. And you did have that, what, that 1970s multiculturalist outlook uh, spoken of a lot at the graduate level in the seminars. Talk about opening up the canon and the diversity rationale was becoming popular. But that's what it was. Uh, that's how it was presented initially, a diversity rationale. And you could see the forms of resentment and, and some hostility, but that was actually secondary to uh, the idea of reform, of, open again, opening things up, more representation of different groups. Uh, by, the, by the late 90s, again, that flavor had, had changed. There, there, was, there was a hostility attached to things. There was an anger that, that I didn't see so much. I mean, they, you, you could see l- little symptoms of it, but it was right. in those earlier stages. It was it was quite uh, again reform minded. It wasn't about taking down the whole system. People didn't talk about systemic things. They they talked about let's have fewer dead white males and let's have more women authors, more more right. more authors of color. That 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 was that was and and you know few people wanted to argue against that at the time. A few conservatives spoke up. I wasn't a conservative back then. Uh, I, I felt troubled by the loss of Jonathan Swift and, and and John Dryden, but you know you couldn't work up much of an objection on on those grounds when it was. Again, there was this positive spin put on, well, there are really good women authors there that have been overlooked because of the the patriarchy. Uh, When you went into sociology, was was your PhD in sociology? It was, yes. I should ask. Now, were were you surprised that, I mean, you've written for us before about sociology as sort of one of the great big picture fields. If we go back to the mid century, we've talked about this before that uh, in grad school, that identity politics and political correctness seemed to have a lot more fat power than you expected them to have. Was that, was that the case? Yeah, the, it, it was more powerful, I think. And I, as we've discussed before, and as I wrote a little bit, a bit about in that, uh, the, the piece and first things that you're referring to, I, I, I was one of those people who went into the field with the, what turned out to be the misconception that the, the field was still basically what it was in the mid 20th century when I entered, but the shift had already started to happen then and the, the movement in the direction of the, 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 the critique of, of forms of knowing in the social sciences that previously had been the mainstream ways of understanding how the social world worked and and the the increasing way of viewing those things as patriarchal and racist and white supremacist and heterosexist and all the rest of it. That had started already. I think the, just to to speak to to the point that you were making earlier about how what wokeness or, or whatever term we want to use to call the phenomenon when it was, when it existed before today, you know, going back to the 90s, for example, um, I think one of this, this may sound cynical, but I think it's actually based in some some empirical facts that we can talk about. 
I, I think what happened is that it's not as though those that the more revolutionary discourse was absent in the 80s and 90s. I just think it was more subterranean and hidden and strategically used. I mean, I, I certainly remember hearing it in in guarded circles in grad school. When I was in grad school, just to fill out the biographical bit a little bit, I was on the left, as was just about everybody, I think, in my grad school cohort and everybody that I knew in who was in the program that I was in. And so I was privy to some of those conversations. You could hear people talk that straightforward language about essentially we we're trying to capture institutions here. We're trying to to win an ideological struggle here. You know, people would use that language, whether they were explicitly Marxian, which is that's the typical place you hear that language or not. Um, but there was there was a guardedness about it because there was a recognition that pragmatically that was not likely to be a successful way to talk. You had to speak the, the, the more or less liberal language of, look, we're just trying to get included. We just want this little piece of our thing right. included in the existing canon, but we're really not trying to shake up the whole thing. I think the, the proof in the pudding with radicals is always look at how they talk when they're a minority and then look at how they talk when they've gotten more numbers in an institution. Mm. Today in the, in the universities, they're, they're much more unapologetic about what they want. What they want is essentially to, to dictate how universities self-define, what the mission of higher education is. And it is DEI. It's diversity, equity, inclusion. That's the, that's the mission increasingly today. That stuff was, again, at the rhetorical level, you could hear that back then, but they just were careful because they knew they didn't quite yet have, demographically, the, the takeover hadn't happened. And that's, I, I might say maybe a little later, something about that demographic shift, because that's, as a social scientist, I think the, the two major things that I bring to the discussion of wokeism that you tend not to hear a lot in the more popular discussions of this phenomenon, or at least they're, they're not as, as center stage, is the, the, on the first hand, the, the role that intellectuals as a class play and the nature and the characteristics of intellectuals, modern intellectuals, in the Western society, how that's really important to understand the rise of wokeism. And then to understand just at an institutional level, how transformation has happened, how you, you, you get some, some early openings uh, directed to a large degree by liberals and even conservatives in the universities who were not individually all that sympathetic to these radical ideas, but who were misguided or they misunderstood, in fact, what would be the consequences of allowing these ideas to get a foothold in, the, in these institutions. And then over time, what are the consequences institutionally? How do you get basically what I call a demographic transformation of the university so that you essentially, you know, even in the 90s when I was there, you could find in my discipline the rare conservative sociologists. Look for them now. They, they don't exist. I mean, there's, there's a tiny handful of them. Um, and they're constantly under fire and they're constantly being ostracized and being dealt with in the heavy-handed way that I think wokeism deals with its opponents when it has numerical strength. Yeah. Well, let me, let me go with the, the one element of this demographic shift. You know, if you look back at the 90s and, and even the aughts, when there were cases, these scattered cases of a conservative in academic of some kind ending up getting persecuted in some way, most often the persecutor was an administrator or some faculty member, a department chair, someone in authority in the institution. And organizations like FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, would come in and defend that person against 
really the the institution, right? The 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 authorities. Yeah. But what we've happened uh, is that uh, the pressure, the political correctness, the identity politics has moved down the age scale uh, to the undergraduates. It seems like the undergraduates are the most vociferous, the most intimidating ones. What it, what as a sociologist, what is what is happening there? Well, the, I, I think the, the demographic transformation has happened not only within the universities, and it's and to some degree what's ha- how it's happened elsewhere has been a consequence of it happening in the universities. But I think we've seen it, you know, if you take the 50-year period, for example, from the, the end of the 60s, basically, to today, uh, we've seen a lot of, of interesting transformations, significant changes in the way that um, the American population, and especially certain subsections of it, identifies itself, thinks about political and cultural matters. I mean, one of the most important ones, I think, is just the, the, the decline of religiosity in the population, which has hit young people even harder than it has uh, older generations. And so part of mm-hmm. my explanation for why wokeism becomes such an important phenomenon over the last 50 years is that it's, it's centered in an intellectual class which already 50 years ago was a far more secularized, uh, irreligious class than the rest of American society was. It's gotten even more so. And, and hmm. as a sociologist, one of the things that I take as essentially as a kind of a priori claim about human nature, again, I could, I could make an argument for it, but I think it's, it, there is a certain way in which some arguments about human nature are, are sort of before the empirical evidence, and then you can either bear them out or not with the evidence. One of the things that I take as a given to start with is that there is some kind of an impulse in human beings fundamentally toward essentially religious ideas and religious ways of thinking. If we include in that, if we're talking about just the the the, the necessity to uh, construct meaning from the world, the necessity to um, have narratives that help us to explain fundamental existential problems, the most fundamental for, of, of which for us is our mortality of the existence of death. The, the need yeah. for ritual, the need for collective interaction along those, uh, those narrative and symbolic lines. This is something that's in us innately. Uh, the fact that the intellectual class has gotten uh, substantially less uh, religious, and it, in fact, it, this started well before the 60s, but it accelerates then. Um, this doesn't mean then that they're, they then give up the desire for the kinds of benefits that religious discourses give us. Wokeism becomes a kind of, in, the, in Eric Verglin's terms, an ersatz religion, a replacement for religion. And you, you, you see a kind of parallel thing in younger generations today. A lot of young people who have grown up, college students, who have grown up in the absence of religious traditions. So their families are irreligious. Their communities are basically irreligious. They haven't gotten any of this stuff from any of the sources that people previously did, including young people. Again, their, their impulse, they still want meaning in the world. They still want the world to make sense. They still want a narrative for the utility of, of proceeding in particular ways, a moral universe of good and evil, etc. cetera. Um, increasingly, they're getting that not from religious discourses, but from what I call quasi-religious discourses, or Berglund calls ersatz religion, from these, again, in yeah. Berglund's terms, they're neo-Gnostic political movements. That's where they're getting it. And so wokeism, in my view... Is, is one of those movements. It provides at least some of what religion provides, although ultimately failingly, ultimately incompletely, 
because of the way that, that wokeism works as an ersatz religion. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. It is. I remember people talking about, oh, you know, relativism of, of, of the left and college students live in this very relativistic, uh, loose moral world. But woke is a highly moral vision. And you've got oh, heroes yeah, and you've got vision. villains uh, yeah. in, in it. And, and you've got your sacred elements uh, as well, correct? Absolutely. That's, yeah, the central definition of, of wokeism in, in uh, my usage, at least, is to, to look at it as a very stringent form of moral binis, binarism. That is a way of organizing the world in uh, really simplified terms, two categories, essentially. There are the pure victims who have suffered and who are still suffering uh, the, the, the depredations that are being exercised on them by the second class, which is the impure victimizers, the people who have privilege and unjust power and are, who are using that mercilessly against the, uh, the pure victims. This is, it's an interesting thing that you, as you, as you say, there, there's, you can find lots of evidence in left political circles today, including in these young students and the faculty who are, who are guiding them, of what looks like relativism, it's mostly deployed rhetorically. So it'll be it'll be used ultimately as if they see it as a way to use it effectively. For example, to to argue against traditional viewpoints, to, to argue against the existence of, for example, uh, elements of a Western canon in literature. Well, why would we do that? We want to relativize that and recognize that there are no eternal methods that we use to define what's a good work or a great work and what's not, what's a not so great work. They'll use it rhetorically there. They'll become relativists there. But certainly when they talk about those two categories of the pure victims and the impure victimizers, there's no relativism. It's absolutely clear. You're in one box or another and everything follows from that. Which box you're in determines everything about how you're to be treated, um, what your likely trajectory will be. You know, are you on the road then to being persecuted and to being potentially canceled, removed from uh, normal social life because you're so morally beyond the pale? Or will you be elevated and placed upon uh, essentially a, 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 an elevated platform of respect? You'll, you'll be seen as basically a model for that the rest of us should aspire to. You know, George Floyd, in the wake of the George Floyd revolution, as some people, have, I think, rightly called it, becomes that kind of figure. You see these statues and other public renditions oh highly idealized of him emerging around the country and people what, what, treating those as, as sacred objects. I, I was, I was going to say, uh, what is the sacred in, in woke? What, what is it? Where is it? George Floyd became a sacred object, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. De define what, define what are the traits of a sacred object? What, what makes the object sacred? Well, in, 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 in purely sociological or Durkheimian terms, um, you can talk about yeah, sacredness yeah. as just it's a, it's a status that involves uh, most basically being set apart 
from the profane or the mundane. These are sacred things and sacred ideas are seen by the relevant communities that recognize them as such. They're seen as things that need, they're so special that they need protection from the mundane. So they have to be set apart, protected by, for example, ritual taboos. You can't come into contact with sacred things unless you undergo certain kinds of purification processes. You you have to uh, forego certain kinds of uh, especially tainting kinds of activity and so forth. Uh, beyond just the setting apart, beyond just the idea that sacred things are non-profane, non-mundane things by definition, they're typically recognized as having a certain, they, they produce a certain kind of emotional reaction in the members of the, of the community that recognizes them as sacred. That is, they produce awe or admiration. Or in fact, Durkheim actually said, sacredness itself is binary. So there are sacred things that produce awe and admiration, veneration. There are also sacred things that produce a different emotion in us, and that's the emotion of terror and fear. So this gets us, for example, in the, in the Christian religious vocabulary, that gets you, on the one hand, God and the saints and angels, and on the other hand, demons, the devil, etc. Both are sacred objects in that, in that framework. And, and wokeism has, again, it's, it has a similar set of, or similar way of understanding how the, how the world works. You've got the sacred objects. It's, again, fundamentally, these the, the pure victims who are, you used the term resentment earlier, and if, if, I, if I understood you correctly, that's used in the sense that Nietzsche used it as this, you know, Nietzsche used the French version of the term, ressentiment, to talk about, in fact, a philosophical way of approaching the world in which yeah. weakness and suffering and victimhood is presented uh, not as something that's to be overcome, or as something that's to be healed somehow by salvation, ultimately. But it's presented, in fact, as a, itself an admirable superior trait. If you suffer, if you're suffering, then that makes you, that sets you apart and elevates you. It makes you superior. So wokeism, for, for them, the, the sacred objects are fundamentally those individuals and those groups that they've decided, they've set about categorizing the world in such a way as to, to argue that some groups, some individuals, are eternally suffering under these, these incredible burdens. And because of their suffering, precisely because of their, their, their if you will, their failures, their, their inability to climb on the social ladder, those things are all attributed to the malevolent actions of the victimizers. And so it's, it's important then to constantly emphasize, first of all, the suffering, to talk endlessly about it. Talk endlessly also about the agents of the suffering, the fact that it's these victimizers who've done it. And so that sets up, again, this very strict moral binarism in which you can, another piece that I wrote in First Things a couple years back just talked about how during the presidency, in fact, before his election, but especially during the presidency of Donald Trump, you saw this symbolism emerging in the public sphere in a, in a really important way, just the, the almost allergic reaction that people on the left had when they'd see someone wearing a MAGA hat or when they'd see when anyone would even mention the, the former president in a way that didn't start with basically an indictment of his very being. If you said anything that was remotely supportive of him, that immediately placed you in that category of the impure and of the dangerous. Still does. To I, you know, I think, yeah. I, I think Alexander that, this framework, uh, sociological, anthropological, is a much more illuminating one than a political, a standard political framework that 
you know, the old liberal conservative, Republican Democrat, those terms don't really give us much in, in this phenomenon. And one of the things you look at is the way behaviors have changed. How in, in your time on campus, have you seen as you've seen the woke advance? How have the moderate liberals that you know are sort of, you know, they're Democrats, they're never gonna vote Republican, uh, but they sort of hold to some of the old liberal ideals of free speech and, you know, privacy, rights of privacy and freedom of conscience. Okay, that's what you think, whatever. Uh, and how have they responded to the illiberalism of these, these woke uh, brigades? Well, I, I think, again, just to, to speak to the demographic transformation, one of the things, it's not so much a way that they've responded as a way that conditions have changed to produce fewer of them to respond in any particular way. So that's one, one of the things that's happened. I think I've noticed this just in, in 20 years, a little more than 20 years now, as a faculty member at a, on a, a small liberal arts uh, campus, is that the number of those people has, has shrunk over the last 20 years. Um, the, another aspect of, I think, the numbers question is just that the, 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 the remaining number of those people, the liberals who are committed to some older, more traditional version of the mission of higher education, along the lines of what you were just saying, that basically the universities are for open inquiry, more or less free discourse, as long as someone is willing to make a case, that case has to be respected and has to be heard and you have to be respectful of it and you're required, if you're going to respond to it, you're required to do it argumentatively, not just pejoratively and personally, because the mission of the university as a whole was seen as the pursuit of truth. That's We've seen that being transformed. And that's meant that uh, the, the remaining number of those folks who adhere to that vision, they increasingly they know if you stand up in any public forum for that older vision of the university, you can anticipate being attacked increasingly. And not just by you know, a tiny little fringe of your colleagues, administrators and the people who run the place will get involved in the discussion and say, well, wait a minute, you have, in, in talking about the mission of the university, you'd certainly better recognize that now we have a whole DEI office in our provost's office. And now we have you know, DEI outreach through the whole curriculum. We've been transforming the curriculum to meet DEI demands. And we're now transforming faculty hiring to meet those demands. And so I think that at a, at, a, at a fundamental level, one of the things that's happened is those people are shrinking. They're recognizing more and more that they're now, uh, if they're not a numerical minority, the, 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 the numbers of people who are facing them on the woke side are growing. They are, they're much more emboldened, again, at least in part because they have administrators behind them. And so that's changed the dynamic. It's certainly, it's also changed the dynamic in, in, uh, of how students who are woke uh, act on campus. It's kind of one of the things that I, I sometimes will, will raise when I'm talking to the leftist students who I have with whom I have any kind of a rapport or a relationship is I'll say, listen, I, so I biographically, again, I was on your side to some degree when I was your age. The real fundamental structural difference though when I was doing what I was doing at your age, is that the administrators didn't like us. The administrators, when we started doing the things that we did, the administration said, no, this is not, this is too far. You can't be making these claims about, we can't allow 20-year-old people to tell us how the university should be structured, what the mission of higher education is. Now, when they do their thing, when the students are making exactly those claims, 
they can count on people in all sorts of administrative higher up positions to agree with them and to put those things into play. Let's get them, let's bring the radical students in and have them participate in the committee to transform the curriculum. It's important to have those voices included. That's a fundamental shift. Yeah. Uh, as, as we wrap up, think, think historically, Alexander, where have these kinds of woke type, illiberal, coercive movements, where have they ended up? Where have they ended up? Well, what finishes them off? Where do they finish? Well, historically, I think we, our, our existing narrative of how, what happens to those movements or what happens to those, when, when you get a kind of bubbling up of those radical ideas, our story of that to this point is all um, colored by the fact that in the past, there's always been a broader American culture which could be counted on to speak back to it in some critical ways. So, for example, mid-20th century, when you had a bubbling up in the academies and the universities of at least some number, a significant number, certainly not anything approaching a majority, but some number of professors and other intellectual figures who were sympathetic to Marxian communism and to the existing communist regimes that were around at that point. You know, you had a lot of those people like my, my late friend, Paul Hollander, spent a lot of time writing about those folks. His great book, Political Pilgrims, is one of the great empirical studies of uh, professors in the Western world who found a way basically to embrace communism and not just abstract communism, but Stalinism and Maoism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when those people emerged and they had, they could sometimes become tenured professors and they had a podium from which to speak. There was nonetheless, there was a broader university world and a broader American culture, which could respond to that by going, yeah, okay, so somehow they've, they've, they've gotten themselves into this system, which relies on tenure and the protection of speech and so forth. So we're going to allow them to speak, but there's going to be a concentrated effort to speak back to them, because that's what universities do. Again, when bad ideas are produced, um, we want to challenge them with better ideas. Um, and there were all sorts of ways in which those ideas were prevented from achieving, from, from reaching into the, the, the positions of power and administration in universities and elsewhere. Um, again, over time, what happened is that enough of those people got into positions of power, not Marxians necessarily, but, but radicals of other stripes. Uh, you know, the, there was a series of pushes, if you will. Um, you had the mid-20th century Marxian stuff. That basically failed at the institutional level. They weren't able, really able to achieve power. You had the new left in the 60s, which, which had a little more success, because especially at the end of the 60s and early 70s, a lot of the former street radicals, who were all, or many of them were very highly educated, they said, hey, let's, let's take the Gramscian line and basically infiltrate the institutions of education. And let's try to carry the, the, the revolution through there. They had greater success yeah. there. They started creating the studies programs and they started moving the social sciences and the humanities in particular directions. By the time you get to the 90s, and especially today, though, the, the, the institutional ground in which those ideas are operating is very different. So it's a real, it's an empirical question and, and a worry for me when you talk about the universities today. How will you, how will this all end? When, you know, on my campus, for example, anytime there's a dust up about these things and anytime there's any kind of a public discussion, uh, increasingly what happens is just there's an overwhelming number of people who gang up on any dissenters 
and they they essentially they just use all the epithets. That's a white supremacist position, or that's a patriarchal position, or that's whatever, and it gets drowned out that way. And the silence from anybody who might disagree is just deafening. And so then again, yeah. because you've had administration, some administrative takeover, and so forth, some of those ideas can can be put into to play in a way that they couldn't before. It's difficult to see where the challenges will come because the pipeline of new professors doesn't look promising. The new people that you see coming in are more and more and more radical and more woke on all these issues. The student body too, in that direction. And they're less educated as well, I'll say. That's what I saw. And that's true of both. In, in, in my years. One of the things you yeah. see from the younger yeah. faculty is that they, they're very uninterested in intellectual discussion and, and exchange with people who disagree with them. Uh, as soon as they recognize yeah. where you are on the moral binarism, their response to just about everything you say then is to, is to label you as impure, as an enemy. We, we, we had a name for that in the old days, Alexander. It was called anti-intellectualism. <laughs> That's, that is one of the ways that we talked about it previously. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's our discussion. Alexander, we'll, we'll, we'll have you back uh, uh, later on in, in, in 2023 to fill us in on whether this woke movement is, uh, is still building and growing or whether we see signs of, of exhaustion, deterioration. But thank you for joining us, uh, Alexander, and we will be in touch. My pleasure. Yeah, let, let us be hopeful in the nature, in the, in the spirit of the season. Let's be hopeful that things can, things can move in the right direction. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.